0: There's nobody to second-guess me on the pronunciation, so I'll say it the way I want to. So um, that's our topic today, the Lord, our righteousness, and we're going to talk about sort of two, two sides of that. Next slide, please. What's that? Oh, good point. That does make it clear, doesn't it? Gosh. Who said no? Um, so, woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture says the Lord. Therefore thus says the Lord, the God of Israel concerning the shepherds who care for my people. You have scattered my flock and have driven them away. You have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil doings, says the Lord. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I've driven them and I will bring them back to their fold and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them and they shall fear no more nor be dismayed, neither shall any be missing, says the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely, and this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. It's only used twice, uh, that formulation. Uh, The other time is in is a very similar, almost identical passage in Jeremiah 33. So this word righteousness, it's actually pretty common uh, in uh, the Old Testament. Used 112 times, as you can see in your notes. So it's justice, righteousness, rightness. Why am I making noise? How's that? Okay, so justice, righteousness, rightness that which is right, just, normal, or natural. And I'll get back to some of those in a minute. It's also, as, we'll, as it was in this passage, righteousness in the name of the messianic king. And righteousness is to characterize a lot of things around us and about us and in us. Uh, the passage itself, of course, this is, this is free, I'm not going to charge you for this, um, deals with the responsibilities of leadership, as you'll see back earlier in that part. We're not going to talk a lot about that, but, but it's good to think about As you Just take a, a scan through that passage and think about ourselves as husbands and fathers, leaders, teachers, managers, superiors, and the responsibilities that God places on us and, frankly, his expectations for us. Um, and the fact that The people over whom we watch, the people for whom we care, we're held responsible before him for that. They're not ours, they're his. And so we need to make sure that we maintain this righteous conduct as we deal with them. Not only in the family, that's an obvious one, or in the church, but also in our workplaces and in society as a whole. So that righteousness is to obviously deal with our relationship with God, and our relationship to others, and that's—you'll see the references I put up there on things like weights and measures. Well, well that we're to maintain righteousness in our business relationships. I'm—I'm I'm not in business, but I—I uh, uh, I was in government, and righteousness is to characterize how we deal with the people who work for us, how we deal with those who, whom we work for, and uh, also the kind of products we put out. It should characterize our view of God's character, since he's the righteous one, the ultimate standard, as we'll talk about in a second. It should characterize the lives of God's people. It should also characterize the reign of well-advised rulers. And if it doesn't, then, you know, there's something that needs correcting. And righteousness, lastly, is to, is to be that which God's people are to seek. It should be characteristic of a godly society of us in our dealings with one another. Um, Now this idea of God is our righteousness really has two parts to it. One is that God is the means by which we are accounted righteous. We don't have it in ourselves as we'll talk about in a minute. It's also the absolute standard. Could you move along there? Next slide. The absolute standard of our righteousness. Anybody recognize the top thing there? very difficult to recognize from where you are. but What's that? Uh, well, yeah, the bottom one is, the top one is actually one of the original meter sticks. It's built in stone. It's in Paris. And one of the original standards for how long a meter was. The bottom one is a theodolite. That's, that's the present-day standard of a meter. A meter is actually defined in terms of... Um, the amount of time it takes, well, it's the, it's the length of, of path light takes in traveling uh, for a given amount of time that's defined out to like 10 or 12 uh, digits. But those the, the reason I put that up there, aside from the fact that it's interesting, is that's the standard of the meter. There's an absolute standard o- against which we are compared. And in our case, that absolute standard is God. The other, there are a couple uh, comparisons I'd like to make to it. One, I'm not a pilot or an aviator, um, and they are different. Um, Yeah, aviators are the ones who do the difficult things, and pilots are the guys who do the rest. (laughs) 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 All right, yeah, I thought that was good. Um, So IFR, instrument flight rules. So the the idea being that if it's at night or in poor visibility, my understanding, again, I'm sure that pilots and aviators will correct me, but um, is that the key thing is believing your instruments, believing that external reference that tells you whether you're upside down or not. Uh, Failure to do that will usually end up in a smoking pile on the ground. So similarly to that, Believing God's standard of righteousness rather than our own will help keep us upright and alive. The other thing is magnetic versus true north for folks who do any sailing or, uh, or flying, for that matter. You have magnetic compasses and gyro compasses. Gyro compasses are oriented to the true geographic north, that which we see on a, on a chart or map. Magnetic north is oriented for use with a magnetic compass is oriented according to the lines of flux in the earth. And they point not at geographic north, but at magnetic north. And there are a couple problems with that. Down here, it's not a big deal. There's some deviation between the two. So if you take a long voyage, you'll end up in the wrong place uh, by following what you think is north but isn't. But you get up uh, near the north pole or the south, down near the south pole, It's a considerable difference because the poles are in different places. So the fact that um, you're following the magnetic compass may mean that you end up in a radically different and undesirable place. Similarly, magnetic north, as many of you I'm sure know, moves. Uh, It can be almost, right now it's moving toward coincidence with geographic north, but eventually it'll pass that and move out again. So it's not a fixed standard of north. Neither are our standards or our society's standards fixed standards of righteousness. Because it can't be self-righteousness for us. Let's see. In this verse here, Isaiah 64, 6, which is one of my uh, favorite ones, well, most instructive ones not necessarily favorite ones we have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds those things that we think are righteous are like a polluted garment we all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away so that polluted garment is it's not just stained it's the uh, I won't go into exactly what what the Hebrew word means but but it's can be you can think of it as filthy rags. I used to hear of it as as the rags a leper would wear. It's actually a little bit more graphic than that. But um, the point being that our standards of righteousness are the very dregs in God's eyes. It's like somebody on the top of Mount Everest looking at the bottom of the Marianas Trench. The God the little fish swimming around at the bottom of the Marianas Trench thinks things are pretty good and that he's a, he's a pretty good fish but from God's standard uh, tens of thousands of feet up uh, they really aren't uh, what they need to be at all we can't come before God on the basis of our best we have to come to God on the basis of his best anybody remember Nadab and Abihu probably not I, or maybe do it. Good, Don, good job. Um, so, guys in Leviticus 10, one through 7, it's the sons of Aaron. You may not hear any more about them because they don't last past that point. By verse 7, they're gone. They came before God on their terms, bringing what turned out to be an improper offering of incense before God. So, coming before God on our terms rather than his can be fatal. And it can be fatal for us, too. Well... It's really a relief, though. Since we're Christians and we have the scriptures, we don't have to worry about it. Next slide, please. Anybody know the guy on the left? Okay, who is? Alfred E. Newman, those of us who are my age or older and a little bit younger. And he's still around, by the way. Um, His slogan, as you see there, is, what? Me worry? Well, as Christians, with the scriptures, we can sort of be like Alfred E. Newman. We're good. We got, the, we got what we need. We have that standard of righteousness. But then we come to the curious case of the guy on the right. Anybody know who he is? A little bit tougher. Samuel Morse. Most famous as inventor of the telegraph. Also a, a dedicated believer uh, and strongly influenced by the scriptures and it determined to, to uh, let what he believed the scriptures said be known in society his particular topic slavery his point of view it's a good thing so in the years prior to the civil war he became known as one of the most one of the more prominent scripturally based defenders of slavery now was that because morse was an evil man no i don't think so i think it's because he had a blind spot that sounds a very innocent term, but as in the case of Morse, it's not. It's a very dangerous term. Blind spot, of course, that lacuna, that undetected flaw, the gap. We may think we're following God in his word, but we're badly off track. One example is the one Morse fell into, slavery and the curse of Ham. I give you the reference there. If you've gone to, I know a number of us have gone to Alex Roley's class on uh, sort of justice and and, uh, race relations in society. The curse of Ham there in Genesis has been dramatically, was dramatically twisted to give a scriptural justification for the oppression of one with another. But those are folks who have a lacuna, who have a blind spot. They're also folks, and sometimes we can find ourselves in that group, it's not a lacuna, it's a deliberate distortion where for our own reasons, perhaps even unconsciously, we find ourselves twisting scripture for our own ends. For example, and i give you some references in Jeremiah, but, but men who use scripture to abuse and oppress women rather than acting as the sacrificial servant leaders of their families and societies. We have a lady in our home group, actually, who's a trauma counselor, And she's had to, uh, she's been trained to deal with people who have suffered exactly this. Fathers who abuse their daughters while quoting scripture to them to tell them to honor them as fathers. Well, hopefully nobody in here is involved in something quite that bad. But we we need to be careful because any of us is subject to seduction by our own twisted desires, our own wrong desires wrong emphasis, uh, and our ability to think that we're doing the right thing, but we're not. So how do we protect against that? Well, I give you some suggestions there. One is humility. Uh, be careful about praying for humility. God tends to be quick to answer. so. But we do need to practice it before God and before others. We do need to make sure that people know that, that we are open to input, especially our wives, most of them have that already. But um, you need to make—I need to make sure that my wife knows that I want to hear from her when I'm going off track, when she thinks I'm going off track. The suggestion I had, when I, even before I was married, was—excuse <coughs> me—on a date night, one of the first questions from from a guy um, should be. Uh, where have I fallen short this week? And I, I actually don't do that explicitly now, but, but strangely, when I did, she was rarely at a loss. <laughs> I, I'm not sure why that was, but, but it was. So. But to, to let her know, and those around me know, including my children, that uh, I'm open to that, and in the workplace as well. Another is sitting under sound teaching. That one, we can a block we can check. Um, but a third part of it is this passage I quote in, or I reference in Acts 17, search the scriptures to sift the truth about what we believe and what we've been told, and I think if Marty were standing here, he'd tell you the same thing, look at what I tell you, and look at what the Bible says, and make sure they line up, and if they don't, you know who's right, okay, the next one is we need to be able to feed ourselves. Sitting under uh, good teaching is essential, <coughs> but so is being able to, to listen to God ourselves, to mine the word for what it says to us on our own. And if you don't feel confident in doing that, you and I need to, be, need to get ourselves, we need to ask for help to learn how to do that on our own, to become skillful craftsmen of the word. And then lastly, and most imp- well, not most importantly, they're all important, but I need to submit myself to what I learn. It's like the pastor <coughs> who uh, was preaching in, in Scotland or somewhere, supposedly. He goes up to the uh, pulpit and uh, preaches a sermon. The elders, he's a new pastor, the elders uh, tell him, you know, great job, pastor, Uh, he comes down and the next Sunday he preaches the same sermon. They're a little concerned. The third Sunday, the same thing. And the the, uh, elders come to him after the third sermon and say, Pastor, aren't you ready to move on? And he says, well, when you start doing what I tell you that God says, then we'll move on to the next one. And we're that way too. We need to, I need to listen to what God says and put it into practice. Okay, next slide. Some questions for you. Have you ever found your moral compass was badly misaligned? And how did it get recalibrated? The second one is, might your compass be misaligned now? And if it is, then uh, don't let that rest. Do something about it. Michael Coffey, I give you Michael Coffey's name, Jim Hassett's name, others if, that's a, if, if this strikes you and you say, you know, the divergence is pretty great, then get some help to fix that because that can be disastrous for you and those around you. And then the thirdly, and has God ever shown you that you have a blind spot? How did he do that and how did he fix it? Okay, that's it. Turning you over. is there anybody here who does not know what table group they're going to okay if we're all good then go ahead and split up to the table groups and see you back here at five of